0: This is Nick Umbrellaro, host of Tiger Talk, a student media podcast based on news for the LSU and Baton Rouge area. I'll be honest, I haven't seen the movie Moneyball. Every time I see it pop up on my Netflix, I just skip past it, thinking, I'll see it another time. But with reporters like we have on right now, you don't need to watch that kind of movie. Jared broadham has been doing the extra research, making sure that we understand the advanced stats as it looks to the game of baseball. Jared, how are you doing today?
1: I am great, Nick. I am so happy to be here. It's my first time on with you guys, uh, and I'm uh, just thrilled. Season's opening up Friday, and um, opening week just has that different feel to it, you know what
0: I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And this is your third year on the baseball beat as well. Uh, So let's just start right into it. So who's new to the roster, and how are things looking so far?
1: Yeah, so... Um, let's first talk about Jay Johnson. He is the new face. Um, Palmineri retired at the end of last year. Um, left a lot of great players left, but um, when Jay Johnson came in Ari- to LSU from Arizona, he really brought in um, some great talent with him. Um, he's a power-driven guy, a lot of, lot of offensive prowess coming in from Arizona. He led the NCAA in runs last season, um, and with him came Jacob Barry, uh, a crazy talented freshman, from Arizona with him. Um, Barry led Arizona in multiple categories last season, Um, uh, home runs, hits, OPS, um, just anything you can think of. Jacob Barry was on top of it as a freshman um, playing DH. So he was just an incredible talent for LSU to get um, and to match up with a player of Dylan Cruz's caliber where you have one player that is hitting a 1.115 OPS in Barry joining your Dylan Cruz who is hitting a 1.116 OPS and to have those two guys together in the same lineup is just going to create some serious fireworks for this offense not to mention all the other returning talent coming with them Um, there's some great pitchers coming in as well that Johnson brought in directly from Arizona Bryce Collins and Riley Cooper um, they should definitely be involved in what the staff's trying to accomplish, as well as uh, San Francisco transfer Eric Resselman. He is electric. He's hitting 96-97 on his fastball. Um, he's got great great breaking ball pitches. Um, I would expect him to be very involved in the end-of-game sort of scenarios, I, not necessarily as a closer because Johnson hasn't really decided exactly who he wants that guy to be yet, um, but I would expect to see Resselman a lot um, towards the end. There's a lot of great freshmen coming in as well. You have Josh Pearson and Josh Stevenson in the outfield, Brennan Holt and Luke Leto in the infield. Um, some other transfers uh, that are going to be involved in the positions, Braden Jobear, Tyler McManus. We could go on and on. This team is going to be stacked with a lot of talent, both returning and coming into the roster this year. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, pitching rotation-wise, he hasn't really – said exactly what the plan is but he has alluded to two starters that are heading into this weekend those being mikhail hillard and blake money with blake money starting on the friday game
1: yeah blake's really impressed i think a lot of his teammates and coaching staff so far coming in to the fall um blake i think was sitting around at least 270 pounds i think by the end of last season he's a tall guy so he's 6 270 but that's a little bit overweight for what he wanted to be He lost 50 pounds over the summer and is looking like a completely different person. Um, Everything that we're hearing from players and from Jay Johnson and Jason Kelly, the new pitching coach, um, is that the ball is coming out of his hand so much smoother and quicker than ever before, and he's really looking like a completely different type of pitcher. Apparently, it was enough to warrant him a Friday night start as a sophomore at LSU. Um, I think it's a really great opportunity for him, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do on friday and you can't beat experience then on saturday too with mikhail he has seen so many different scenarios in five years at lsu from being on a team that wasn't that good and and sort of fought their way around his freshman year when lsu went to corvallis for a regional and ended up losing there to i believe oregon state in those those games um in 2018 lsu made a great run and um fell short in the super regionals florida state mikhail was there for that Um, Mikhail's seen COVID cut cut their season short, he's seen reduced capacity in stadiums, and he's seen something as tragic as his father passing away last year. You can't replace that sort of experience, and you could tell um, when we spoke to him today with the media day just how confident and how uh, centered he is and focused in what he's trying to accomplish this year. I think Mikhail's going to be one of the most consistent pitchers on this staff this year. And putting him in a Saturday role, a a rubber match sometimes where you really need that second game to go your way so you can prepare for the third one if you drop the first game or to close it out. Saturday is such a huge night. I think it's a great decision to put a guy with that much experience into that Saturday role and a guy who we know can do it like Mikhail can.
0: Yeah. So as I alluded to earlier, you took some time and came up with, Just a whole couple spreadsheets on advanced stats. Uh, A couple that I want to point out were weighted on base average and weighted runs above average when it comes to the hitting perspective. So let's start with weighted on base average. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. Um,
1: Weighted on base average or WOBA is. It's almost like I, I wrote. I I wrote about this in an article, and I'll I'll use the quote from the article. And just think of WOBA as the Dark Knight to the original Batman if Woba was being compared to on base on base average OBA uh, or OBP I'm sorry uh like it's it's enjoyable the the original Batman's enjoyable Jack Nicholson's good Joker and it it makes it brings to light some of the things that make Batman good but it's not nearly as all encompassing as the full Heath Ledger the full um, Christian Bale and all the great characters that Christopher Nolan brought to light with that movie WOBA is that WOBA takes the the normal stats that go into what's making an on-base percentage your walks, your singles, your hits, doubles on-base percentage looks at all of those stats as equals they look at everything from a home run to a walk as the same thing it means you got on base and that's it's a good thing to look at WOBA on the other hand takes each of those individual stats and weighs them differently a home run is not worth the same as a walk everybody who watches baseball knows that um and so by weighting those different things you get a better feel for what actually the player is contributing it's, it's a little bit be- more of a collective stat um to explore what the player is contributing offensively to the team
2: yeah
0: i mean there were four or i'm sorry there are five players that you analyzed in your piece you found that the sec average is just about a 323 percentage and you found that dylan cruz and jacob barry had the highest of the five you analyzed with cruz coming in at a 477 and barry just below that at 469 so what do those numbers mean
1: yeah so if the sec average is a point point three two three, 0.323 that's the normal average of what they're getting to um cruz and barry are crushing that average um they're they're way ahead of the curve on that um they're they're Sensational in the fact that when you're comparing it to the MLB lead last year, the, the WOBA lead last year was from Bryce Harper, who plays for the Philadelphia Phillies and won the NL MVP last season. His WOBA last year was a .431. So obviously I can't say for certain that these statistics are completely 100% accurate due to some of the weight factors and um, just lack of data that sometimes is is hard to come by when college baseball doesn't have all of the statistical availabilities that major league baseball might have um but on the other hand i do believe that there's no doubt that Cruz and barry really had great seasons last year and i think that number indicates that so
0: yeah and you're talking about your three and three four five hitters in that lineup that are going to be constantly mashing throughout it and here we transition to weighted runs above average so major league average is zero runs that's your average player. Anything above that is, you know, more runs you're contributing to your team, more wins in the long term. Uh, All the players that we have here at LSU, all double digits by the numbers you tracked, with Cruz being the highest at 36.78 runs and Barry at 35.99. So what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so it's really just um, this is really looked at as a measure of how many runs are Jacob Barry and Dylan Cruz contributing to the team across the season, um, with their hitting specifically. When you're sort of to go a little bit deeper, everybody is sort of familiar if you've watched a little bit of baseball within the last five to ten years of hearing about war, uh, wins above replacement. Um, this is where you really get into the money ball thing and, and you know we, you want to make wins, not by players. You, know, you want to buy wins. Um, war is calculated by looking into – The number of batting runs, the number of fielding runs, and the number of base running runs that each position player is contributing. While also taking uh, into account the positional adjustments and the league adjustments into that equation. And you can find basically the number of wins that a player is contributing to his team over his next replacement. The weighted run above average is just a non-adjusted way of saying how many runs this player is contributing to their team via their hitting. Over the season, Jacob Berry and Dylan Cruz would be contributing 35 and 36 runs to the team just by themselves. And a lot of, with the average, it was hard to calculate an average across the SEC with this because of some different weight factors again. Um, But to think about that a league average for the MLB is zero and you're going up from that, it's a lot again to comprehend that these guys are really as good as they are, and I think LSU fans should be really appreciative um, that they get to watch them all season long.
0: Yeah, I mean, long story short, what these numbers really show is it's going to be a top offense, and that's a big thing that you know we've kind of been reporting on. How do you see that fitting in?
1: Yeah, so the lineup, top to bottom, and I, a lot of players have been alluding to this across um, the the fall and the spring, and and coming into even opening week this week that. You know they don't want to be too confident, but you can definitely tell that there's a bit of a swagger with them, and that um, they feel that one through nine, whoever they're putting in that lineup, is going to be a problem for that pitcher to get out. There will be no easy easy part of the lineup to, to kind of coast through. Um, that that's how that lineup feels. That's how Jay Johnson feels, I believe too. Um, they're still piecing together a couple of things and and what exactly they want to do with the lineup and. Um, righty-lefty, some things like that. But the lineup is going to be something serious, and I think you can, you're going to have to account on that um, in order for LSU to have postseason success. If, if that lineup is as good as it is, then it's just up to the pitching to really piece together some outs, give them enough support for the offense to just – blow teams out of the building i think it's really going to be fun to watch
0: yeah and speaking about that pitching one other stat you looked at was fielding independent pitching and there's a difference between that and era and you went through all that in your piece uh but what you found is mikhail hilliard had one of the lowest fips with the team at 3.55 compared to an era of 433 so what's the difference between those numbers and how does that fit in sure
1: um the fip number compared to an era uh doesn't really take into account um, any action, any event in the game that takes the ball and puts it into play and leaves it up for the defense to decide what happens to the ball. So this can be good and bad for pitchers sometimes. Sometimes it helps them, and sometimes it hurts them. If you're a ground ball pitcher, uh, the example I always use is like Dallas Keuchel. Uh, if you're familiar with him, with the Houston Astros, very high ground ball rate puts a lot of guys, you know, on the ground where his defense can make easy outs, make easy throws. And that's great. You know, pitchers have success that way. Landon Marso did a lot of that when he was at LSU. Um, but at the same time, you know, if your defense is not as strong and they're they're making errors or, you know, making plays that, you know, other defenses may be may, may be making and um, there's a lot of factors that can go into why an ERA is up or down. FIP is a way to kind of simplify and take the defense out and sort of look at just at what the pitcher is controlling. The only thing that FIP cares about are walks, hit-by-pitches, hits, um, and—I'm sorry, not hits, strikeouts, and home runs. So hits in a way. But um, those are the only things where the defense is not having any impact on the ball. Um, It's just what is the pitcher doing on the mound. For Mikhail to have a lower FIP than his ERA, it's much more indicative that this guy is a a baller. He is going to go out there and dominate guys at the plate and— you know, force a lot of people to be in uncomfortable positions and then put them away with that monster curveball. If you've been watching Mikael Hillary for the past five years, you know that that curve is going to break all the way across the plate from letters to knees, and um, it's it's really super fun to watch for him as well. So um, for him to have that lower FIP, I think it's just indicative of how good of a pitcher he is um, versus, um, you know, some other guys who – you know, it's not necessarily that if their FIP is higher than their ERA, it's not necessarily that they're a bad pitcher. It just means that, you know, sometimes they get a little bit of help from their defense. Mikhail is out there dominating guys um, and just, just putting them away. And, you know, a lot of strikeouts and a lot of, of good good pitching to dominate the plate that way.
0: Yeah. And one of the things he spoke about during the press conference today was his utilization of five pitches now. So he's bringing more to his arsenal. He's got a change up that he can, you know, get – batters off speed with so having that kind of arsenal and that weapon is really great um i want to switch now to jay johnson so this is his first year coming in as the head coach it's a, mo- a monumental monumental season for everyone here having a new coach in this position so what's been different with his approaches to the game than let's say paul Maneri's last year
1: i think jay and this is this is not a knock on paul Mineri was a very um detail-oriented coach but um and, and cared about his players a lot, and um, he was the the players' coach. He was always there for his guys and always supportive of them. And I think LSU players and LSU fans realized that and and recognized Maneri for his great achievements. I mean, not every single manager um, is out there winning a College World Series. You know, Maneri was one of those guys, and he was a very successful manager. But you look at what Jay Johnson is doing already in his time at LSU. There is just so much. Organization, uh, control, focus, detail. Those are like some of the nouns and adjectives that I, I love to use about Jay, in that he is always going to be the guy to look at that exact thing, the little details, and make sure that they're correct. He is always going to be the guy to keep his team as mentally focused as they are physically ready to play. He's always going to be the guy that um, when you when you walk into the team meeting room for you know to, to for players to get ready for the game or get ready for practice or open the week whatever they're doing, there's you know things written on the board about specifics about sp- specific players and there's you know a whole schedule ready for the day of what they're going to do from top to bottom. They have 10 minutes specially dedicated to uh, meditation visualization, which is amazing. You just don't see that out of a lot of ton of college managers like this. Jay's attention to detail is unmatched. I I haven't seen a a coach like this at LSU where everything is being accounted for. There's no detail that is going unnoticed and no detail that is sweeping under the rug. Um, Jay's going to be on top of it and, and accounted for it. So, He's so experimental. I, I think that's one thing LSU fans are going to find that he is really somebody who is going to play around a lot with how he's going to manage games with rotations and lineups and defensive changes and guys' approaches to the plate to you know sending runners, bunting. Like I, I think Jay is going to really diversify what it looks like to play LSU baseball beyond just sort of the Skip Bertman era where there was a lot of power and they lived off the long ball from the Maneri era where there's a lot of focus on, you know, getting on base and making the fundamental plays and things like that. I think Jay is really going to diversify that approach to the plate. It's why he had the best offense at Arizona in the country last year, so.
0: So more of a statistical pr- approach to everything kind of going on. I mean, one thing that was highlighted, like you said, was the meditation periods that all the players are going on uh, and just the way that just the mental preparedness, you know, taking breaths before an at-bat so you're able to, like, calm yourself and get ready for that and having those kind of pr- approaches to everyday things, I'm, every game things for these players. It's going to, you know, keep them calm in those bigger game situations.
1: Yeah, this is a big program. I think players who come here realize that, and, and I think they'll, if they don't, they'll definitely realize it on Friday night when there is uh, one of the most packed Alex box stadiums that you'll see um, since – before the pandemic started, um, it's really going to be a big culmination of both the start of the Jay Johnson era and the uh, you know st- sort of end of what we're kind of dealing with here. And hopefully, fans can start getting back to the stadium and, and getting back in. Um, when you see all of that, and you you are playing in super regionals at Alex Box at a thirteen thousand people. Think the players realize that this is a big deal, and they're going to get nervous. It, it, if you're a freshman or a transfer playing in that environment for the first time, it can be overwhelming. It, there's a there. I remember the look on Jacob Berry's face, who's you know has been there. He he went to Omaha last year with Arizona. He's a, a highly touted prospect. He knows what media attention looks like. He had never seen like 10 cameras all lined up and microphones in his face on media day. He looked a little bit overwhelmed and I was like, you know, Jacob, I know Jacob's a very like cool, calm, collected guy and he, he works very hard, but to look a little bit overwhelmed like that, it's, it's a lot for these guys and for Jay to keep it all internal and, and then release it slowly with that visualization and that meditation um, and keep everything in house is a big deal. I think I think it's a really great thing that Jay can do to bring to the team to manage their expectations and to have them ready to play and focused and, and ready to go. Yeah.
0: And you're gonna see different approaches at all aspects of the game. Something he talked about today is wanting his starters, you know, get eighteen to twenty outs, have his bullpen come in and clean things up, having those different orientations of pitchers as well, so you're not having your starters go longer in the game so they have more juice near the end of the season. Or even your batters in their approach of you know maybe not swinging on that first pitch you know working counts further so they're able to get the opposing pitcher out sooner than the game so there's gonna be different approaches to everything kind of going on with the team uh, Jacob Berry one player you just noted right there you actually wrote a profile on him. so tell us more about him
1: sure yeah um, Jacob's a really great guy that I think LSU fans are gonna fall in love with um, very quickly um, his dad believe it or not is a he's not a native of louisiana but did play college baseball at uh university of louisiana lafayette uh, just a few few miles down the road down to the west so um then ended up getting drafted by the astros in the fourth round spent some time in the minor leagues but then moved out to arizona he's serving as a, a school superintendent now at the the same school that jacob was attending for high school so he got to keep a close eye on jacob um as, as he grew up and um Jacob would spend time going to Chase Field with his dad and watching the Diamondbacks play and I I asked him if he had a a player that he models his game after and he said Paul Goldschmidt which I think is for MLB fans and for baseball fans anybody who's familiar with Paul Goldschmidt knows that this guy is one of the most complete hitters in Major League Baseball he has power he has contact he's such a a smart hitter great approaches to the plate um, and really makes pitchers pay when they make mistakes and I think Jacob is going to embody all those things when he gets up there to the plate. He started switch hitting as a very young kid. He, he told he said he told us that his dad was um, one of the you know biggest motivators in his life, but from a very young age wanted him to learn how to switch hit and and wanted him to have that skill in his back pocket. And he's developed it over all this time. And I, I don't have the statistics on me, but last year he was one of the most effective players from both sides of the plate. Usually when you have a switch hitter at the college level, you know they're a little bit better from the right side or the left side than they are, vice versa, and whatever they're dealing with. So for Jacob to be as prolific as he is from both sides of the plate makes him so dangerous as both a weapon in the lineup and if you look at him as protection for Dylan. Um, I don't think you'll see a lineup this year that Jay's going to put out where Dylan and Jacob are not next to each other and I think most of the time Jacob's probably going to be batting behind Dylan due to Dylan's Dylan has a little bit more speed. He can get on base, make some better base running. If Jacob hits an extra base hit, things like that, um, for Jacob to be able to dominate both sides of the plate with Dylan in front of him, you can't pitch around Dylan Cruz because Jacob Barry's going to be right there in front of you. And you can't pitch around Jacob Berry because you have K Doty, Gavin Dugas, K Beloso, all these guys right behind him, um, It's such a hard thing to deal with for an opposing pitcher, and Jacob is really focused. You could tell he he just has one of those special types of work ethics where he is just in the batting cages all day, working to perfect his craft, even though he is already one of the top prospects in this upcoming MLB draft. It's a shame, LSU fans. will only get to see him for one season, but um, he's really going to be somebody where... In three, four years, and he's making his Major League debut, LSU fans will say, hey, I remember when Jacob Berry played at LSU. Um, he's going to be that kind of guy, the, the Alex Bregmans, the the Mikey Matoks of the world where you you remember when that guy played here.
0: Well, it's going to be a big season looking ahead. And the first weekend series is going to be against Maine. we got a three-day series, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you can stick with us. We'll have all baseball coverage all throughout the year. Jared, where can we find you?
1: Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore the real jair bear. Um, that's that's my Twitter handle, and you can see my work on lsureveley.com. com. Uh, I, I am gonna try to, throughout the season, if you have interest in the advanced stat stuff, I will definitely be posting uh, weekly updates on um, the weighted on base average, the weighted runs above average, um, FIPs. Uh, you know. Strikeout to walk ratios, case per nine, walks per nine, home runs per nine, everything that you could want in those articles that I posted. There'll be weekly updates with that. Um, Twitter is the best place to do that, um, and so if you if you follow my Twitter, I'll definitely have a lot of that going on there. And uh, I'll be putting out coverage. I'll be at all three games this weekend, and so uh, we'll be we'll be all over this opening series. And hopefully, we'll get back soon and uh, talk more about the team. And hopefully, we'll get to learn a little bit more about everything as. Jay's sort of been a little bit tight to the chest about things, and understandably so. It's a new era. He he doesn't want to, you know, um, reveal everything that he has planned. Um, But I think this weekend will be a great gauge to see exactly um, what this team can do and um, how far they might be able to go this year. Awesome.
0: Well, thanks for coming on, Jay. Thanks, Nick. This past week, February 10th, it was announced that the battalion of Texas a and M student university paper would be ceasing print. This comes after the president of the university, Catherine Banks, decided just to cease production. Join us now is the editor-in-chief of our student university paper, The Reveille, Laura Nicholson.
2: What up, what up? <laughs> hey, Nick. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. A little heated like everybody else about this issue, but...
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's been crazy. I my like very initial reaction was like i couldn't even imagine president william tate just kind of deciding one day like asking to meet with us and deciding that they're going to cease our print publication i would be like just completely taken aback by it so that was definitely my initial reaction to this whole thing and yeah our editorial board that's consists of me our managing editor our opinion editor and the news editors uh Release an editorial earlier this week about it, um, talking about kind of the issues with it and why it's definitely an, a huge overreach and an overstep on the administration's like ability to dictate what the newspaper does.
0: Yeah, and two are di- two options they kind of presented for Anam's paper going forward was either transition to be a part of the journalism department, and in that case, you'd discontinue the printing of it or they could remain a student organization and have all the costs secured f- for themselves.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's a very weird thing, this scenario that they have put them in, because as far as I understand, they're classified as a student organization. They have their funding to do the print paper, which is only weekly. Um, and then they have the other things that come with it, like their newsroom space and their advisor. And so what they're telling them is exactly what you said, either they have to stop being a student organization and they have to transition to be a part of their journalism department because they don't currently have one. I think it's that they're like just about to start one um, and they have to move under that department, which for whatever reason means that they wouldn't be able to print anymore. Or like you said, they get to stay that way, but basically they lose everything and don't have the money to print themselves. Um, So... That was kind of the original decision that was laid out in front of them. And one thing that we pointed out in our editorial that I find really interesting, the battalion pointed this out in the original story they put out about this ultimatum being given to them is this like new university policy that was instated uh, by the president and the administration saying that all communications, all communications, social media posts, media interviews, written communications, Pretty much anything beyond like an email from how I read the policy needed to be approved by a higher up at the department. And so basically, you know, if you look at that along with this decision, it kind of just looks to me like they want someone who can censor and decide what does and doesn't go in the paper and what does and doesn't appear on the battalion website, which sort of eliminates half the point of print journalism or student journalism as a whole, they can't hold agencies accountable because someone could just tell them no you can't print that. It negates the whole purpose of student journalism, which is definitely what what frustrated me the most about the whole situation.
0: Yeah. You're talking about freedom of the press, first amendment for these students at the, at, at Texas A&M and this right of theirs is just being stripped away almost.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, I couldn't imagine Tate coming in saying that we couldn't do our print version anymore. And then also saying that, you know, the like Manship School, the Manship School is great. But like, like you said, it's a First Amendment right thing. I wouldn't want our paper to be beholden to what they want and don't want to be published. Um, Not that I think we'd have any, any qualms with them about what we do publish. But again, it's like you want to have the freedom to publish what you want. You don't want that censorship or that that authority and you never know you could have a higher administration member going to the journalism department and saying you need to crack down on those kids or else you know we're going to cut funding to the whole department or something. So it's really it 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 just opens a window to a lot of not great possibilities and it's just and again it's it's totally unnecessary. There was no real good explanation. I mean, when banks originally put out that decision and met with student leadership She even, they wrote, disregarded the fact that they had $61,000 in advertisements that were sold for the rest of the semester for the print edition, including with Amazon. So it was kind of like, I don't know, what are you thinking, (laughs) Banks? You know, she's the president. She's been there not too long. So it's a very bold move uh, to do, especially considering she, you know, either didn't know about the ad revenue that they had or... Just assumed they could say, never mind, I don't want to do it anymore. And both of those are not not the case. Um, and she even self-admittedly doesn't have that much knowledge of journalism. She were like that was commented in the battalion that she admitted that. So it's kinda like, seems like a really weird split-second decision. And I assume she didn't think it would get that much outreach, but it is totally blown up on social media. I mean, the president president at Tamu.edu is totally flooded um, because people have been saying to reach out to that contact with complaints. We have an editorial out, like people are outraged. So it's definitely developed since then, some changes have been made, um, but it really reflects on her leadership to make such a bold decision. And to me, such a wrong decision after only being there for only a few months.
0: Yeah. And one major component of this is you know student journalists having that pridefulness of seeing their work being in the print edition I know for myself every single edition that I have where I have a printed byline I've sent back to my parents I feel proud of what, the work that I'm putting in seeing myself being printed in that so yes you're having censorship by the university but your student journalists who have worked so hard for this they're losing that extra sense of pride
2: Definitely. That's what I meant when I said it's half the reason. You know, half of it is getting to hold the university accountable, and the other half is you have these kids that want to come here, or here, Texas A&M, want to go there, want to get an education. They want to be able to leave with a good portfolio, or as we say in journalism, clips that they can present to future employers. Um, And yeah, I mean, you could still achieve that digitally, and, you know, Banks' whole thing here is a digital transformation, even though they have a 25-year-old website. But um, I, I understand that, but I agree with you. The other half of it is just sort of that pride in being able to develop your skills, being able to hold a print product. And I agree. I mean, it's also the sentimentality of having it. I, I have all of my clips. I've been at the Reveille, I started reporting in January of 2019. Now it's 2022 and I'm the editor. And every single article that I've written, I cut out of the paper and it's sitting in a box under my bed. And one day on a rainy day, I'm going to finally like get around to scrapbooking it. It really means a lot to these students. So it's, you know, you can look at it on a business perspective and say that you want to foster a digital transformation. But yeah, I completely agree. You kind of also from a, the way it impacts the students, you got to also consider that.
0: So what can we do going forward? I know you alluded to just the email president at TAMU.edu, but what else can we do?
2: Well, there have been a few changes since that initial announcement was made. So um, I don't remember the exact time frame. I checked it a little while ago, but it was something around 24 hours after that decision was publicized. um, It was announced that banks had changed her mind on immediately stopping print. Because originally she said immediately stopping print. The issue that was supposed to come out the next day wasn't supposed to go out. Within 24 hours, she changed her mind and told them they had until the end of the semester and then they would stop printing. Of course, you know, people that didn't fix the problem, people were still upset. So it looks like the place it's at right now is that they're creating something called a journalism working group, Um, which sounds almost like a task force or an advisory board based off what I'm reading that is going to include two people from Texas A&M's battalion leadership. So two of the like editors, I assume, Um, some people from the Department of Journalism and the battalion's advisor, uh, Douglas Pills. So hopefully from there, they're saying that they want to try to figure out some way to make a print product. So Hopefully, that group lets them talk it out and figure out how to keep doing a print product. I definitely think people can continue to reach out through that email and through other forms of communication, like social media, if like if they feel emboldened to and they want to, you know, voice that they're concerned about eliminating the print publication. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Based off of the reaction I'm seeing and kind of this withdrawal over the past couple days on this hard and fast no more printing rule, it seems like people reaching out on social media is working and people are really, Banks is starting to really realize, oh, maybe there's more to it than I thought there was. Um, So hopefully this, this working group that they make can convince her to let them just continue being a weekly publication. Because to me, the way I see it is, you know, okay, if we have a working group and we're talking about the possibility of a print edition, all right, great, let's just have a weekly print edition. Um, I just haven't had any indication from what I've seen and what I've read. Granted, I'm not at Texas A&M, I don't know what's going on on the inside, but I don't have any indication that it's a serious funding issue or anything like that, so, you know, as long as they can keep the print, that's great, but ideally they get to keep printing weekly.
0: And I mean, like you said, they're pulling in advertisements. So yeah,
2: I mean, yeah, that's Amazon is a pretty great <laughs> advertising deal. And apparently they have, you know, other deals with major tech companies that they like didn't want to disclose or something. So I mean, they seem to be doing well. And that's another great point. They bring in all their revenue through their print advertisements. So it seems like if that's going well, it's like, from my perspective, what I'm seeing is... I don't see where that comes in, where banks is saying that they need to stop printing um, because they're able to self-sustain the funding for that with their advertising revenue. So I don't know why. I don't know why. She says it's for a digital transformation. Um, but I think there were other, other ways to go about fostering that besides just shutting down the print publication. It, just, it reads to me as there might be more to it than that. Which, like I said, with the policies and everything, it seems like that's the case. Yeah,
0: it's definitely a weird situation all around. We're going to include the actual email and the link in the bio just so anyone that does feel the need or anyone that does want to contribute to this and bring attention to the whole issue is more than welcome to email. I want to say thank you, Laura, for coming on and letting us know more about the situation.
2: No problem. Love Tiger Talk. I'm glad we started this, and I'm glad you're our host. It (laughs) seems great. I'm enjoying every episode.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, Laura got this whole thing started last spring, so I'm pretty excited about being on Nick Fruin as well. I know he was pretty happy over the summer, so Mm -hmm. thank you as well, Laura, for bringing this all together.
2: You are so welcome.
0: If you're interested in following the LSU Revely, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LSU Revely. For KLSU Radio, you can find them on Instagram at KLSUFM and live on 91.1 FM.